May the Lord be our teacher as we read his word today to us from Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb, a year old, without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present this with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering 
an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the cleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you love that passage? And it was so well read. Sometimes I feel the Bible doesn't need to be preached when it's read that well. Thank you, Olive. Um, completely unrelated to my sermon, do you notice how in the middle of this enormous chapter 23 of Leviticus about the great festivals of Israel, the holy days of Israel that goes for the entire chapter, smack bang in the middle, literally smack bang in the middle, is a an exhortation to give this stuff to the poor. Do you see that? The last bit of the passage that we just read. So you've got all this stuff about how you bring your first fruits to the Lord and you do this with your grain, you do this, right? In the middle of it all, it says, and don't mow to the edge so that the poor can come along and they're able to take some of your grain and and uh, and olives and, and grapes and so on for themselves. What this effectively means, and I'll get on with the sermon in a second, what this effectively means is that the poor get to taste the first fruits even before it's offered to the Lord. Because you harvest and then you go to Jerusalem and you present it to the Lord. But meanwhile, the poor get to eat. Anyway, nothing to do with my sermon, but perhaps it should be. I'll decide uh, whether it was coherent and whether we'll leave it on the MP3 later. Uh, well, here we are at the end of our Common Sense for the Silly Season uh, series, where we've been exploring the Bible's wisdom on a range of topics that I think you'll agree are relevant all year round and then become especially relevant in these final weeks of the year. We've been looking at things like anxiety and how to deal with the anxieties throughout the year, but especially at this time, how to take them to God. Difficult people was our second topic. How do you find peace with everyone? And then how do you relax knowing you're loved by the Lord when you can't find peace with some? Then we looked at uh, commercialism. We can't avoid commercialism at this time of year, but how does a Christian both participate in the culture and yet, in a sense, subvert the commercialism of our culture? Then we looked at eating and drinking, and Matt gave a great sermon on the beauty of food and wine, and yet also how these things 
uh, can be consumed to excess in a way that dishonors the Lord. And last week, I dealt with hospitality and how hospitality is divine, not simply having people over for a meal, but the biblical concept of hospitality, philozenia, means to love strangers as if they were family members. It's a gorgeous concept, and I hope that you're able to put all of this into practice. Today, we're dealing with how to take a holiday. And I hasten to add, I won't be giving you my hot tips for the summer, uh, the best beaches to go to. Uh, I, I won't even be giving you the uh, famous Dixon tips for packing light. Uh, I am a world expert uh, on that, but we'll have to leave that aside perhaps for another sermon. I also know that not everyone takes a holiday in this period, right? Many of you do. It seems like many of you are already putting into practice my sermon uh, today. Um, some just want to stay around in January, right? Because January is just so gorgeously slow that uh, you don't want to waste January by taking a holiday. That's my policy. Uh, I wait till um, July, August to take all of my holidays, as some of you know. But of course, many do take holidays, and those of us who don't take holidays, uh, I, I think, uh, still approach January with a little bit of a holiday mentality. And I also hope that today th- there'll be some material for people who are in formal retirement. Uh, not that retirement is a holiday, I know, I know, uh, but I think there's no doubt that um, retirement brings new patterns of work and rest. And so what is the Bible's wisdom on, on, this, on this theme? Really what I want to do is offer you a biblical theology of downtime. Okay, sound all right? Biblical theology of downtime. You know, the concept of holidays uh, has a long history. So let me begin, firstly, with a short history of holidays. Um, most books on the topic of holidays say that we have about a 200-year history of the concept of holidays. This week, uh, I looked through the delicious history of the holiday by Fred Inglis, fascinating read, and On Holiday, A History of Vacationing by Orval Lofgren, a thoroughly recommended holiday reading. Uh, Basically, uh, holiday experts uh, are in agreement that the, the, the recent history of holidays is a result of the Industrial Revolution of the 17 and 1800s. Because increased uh, wealth and uh, mobility meant that more and more people had means to take time off work and opportunity to explore exotic places. And that's where the whole idea of uh, modern holiday and tourism uh, came about. And it has become a massive industry, and Australians are world experts, it turns out. Uh, I have discovered that uh, the tourism industry in this country is $37 billion a year, 3% of GDP. Enormous, according to the ABS. And I also discovered that Australians are the biggest holiday spenders in the world. And an individual Australian, on average, spends $3,715 a year on holidays. That's not household, that's individual. Um, That is double the world average. Now, part of that, of course, is to do with travel costs. We've got a big country... Right to fly to you know the next city, it costs a lot. Fly to the northern hemisphere costs a lot, but that doesn't account for all of it. We love our holidays. We are big holiday experts. 
The modern holiday industry certainly started about 200 years ago, but the basic concept of a holiday is very ancient indeed and goes back to the Bible. And you can kind of see this, see this in the etymology of the word. Um, holiday comes from holy day. Now, I'm not just making this up. That, that, that is actually the formal etymological origin. Comes from holy day. Now, here's the thing. The concept of celebratory time off comes almost exclusively from religion. Mainly the Judeo-Christian tradition and a little bit of pagan festival thrown in as well. Now this is something our atheist friends can thank God for, right? We gave them holidays. Maybe try this as an evangelistic technique uh, over the summer period. Holidays started as holy days and part of what I want to say today, if you want the cheats version up front, is that any Christian approach to holidays will see them in part as holy days, gifts from the Lord for our renewal of body and of soul. Ancient Greece and Rome had various uh, festivals, holidays, but very rarely did people get time off on the festival days. Uh, there were some exceptions, like the Saturnalia festival on December 17th, when uh, it was kind of an inversion holiday where slaves were allowed to pretend like they were citizens and even allowed to eat at the master's table. Wow, what a holiday that would have been. But for most of ancient history, did you know that in most cultures we know anything about, the elites of a society worked hardly at all, as very little as possible, and the peasants of society worked every day, every week, all year round. The Bible, however, critiques this. In a culture where a day off a week and four weeks off a year was non-existent, the Bible has a particular thing it wants to say about work and rest, my second point. The Bible on work and rest. On the one hand, the Bible endorses work as sacred and sacred for everybody, not just for the elites. Uh, sorry, not just for um, uh, the, the working class. The elites just sort of hung around and, uh, and, and made the peasants uh, do everything. But in the Bible, in the opening chapters, you get this lovely imagery of Adam, whose name, Adama, means mankind. So it's a kind of representative story here. And part of what the, this Jewish text is saying is that Adam was created to work. And so in uh, Genesis 2.15, you get the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The idea here is God has fashioned the garden and then places his image, human beings, in the garden to work it. God has worked. We now work. The idea of not contributing to the world is foreign to Scripture. The scripture has a high work ethic. Concept of retiring at 50 and just 
lying at the beach is not biblical, is not what you're made for. Nor is the idea of taking a gap year and doing precisely nothing productive. Gap year is fantastic, but they're meant to be productive years nonetheless. The Bible endorses work, but of course God rested from work. And in uh, Genesis 2, we get this little statement about God. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And just if you weren't listening to the first part of the verse, it says, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Think about it. In an ancient culture, could there be a more powerful affirmation of the importance of work and rest than this? That God works and rests. Oh, if I had time, I'd tell you about some of the other creation stories from pagan cultures and how this is a deliberate critique of how paganism thought about the elites not having to work and the slave class having to do all the work. But we don't have time for that. I do just want to say God works and rests. <laughs> and our uh, and our lives are also work and rest. This is also what the fourth commandment is about. Now, I know earlier in the year we looked at the fourth commandment, so we're covering material we've looked at in more detail. But look at the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day commandment in uh, Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that you, uh, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. The point I made when I gave a sermon on this commandment is that God is honored in our productivity and he is honored in our rest. And you will only get that idea from the Bible. Notice the curious twin purpose of rest. I want to zero in on this. Do you notice it has two purposes? It's partly to the Lord and partly for us. You spot this? So there's the to the Lord bit in the first bit. This is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. Okay, so it's Godward. Rest is partly about God, honoring him, seeing the rest as holy. This is a holy day. But notice also in the last part of the verse, it emphasizes that Sabbath commandment was given, and I quote, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. So it's for you. It's partly to honor the Lord and it's partly to relax. And notice that it's everyone who has to relax. Okay, Not just the elites who were very good at it, but they were to make sure everyone in society, including the animals, had a day off, which I think is kind of cool. God built us for productivity. But he has blessed us with rest. And this rest is partly for ourselves, 
and partly to the Lord. It is partly relaxation and partly worship. And here we are getting close to the main thing I want to say today. This connection between relaxation and worship in the Bible is very close. There is a kind of logic and a connection between relaxation and worship uh, throughout Scripture. You know, one of God's favorite images for final salvation is rest. Last week I said one of his favorite images is banquet, and that's true. Banquets are wonderful rest periods, but God loves to describe the kingdom as a banquet, but he also loves to describe the kingdom, salvation, as resting. Here's the Old Testament um, in Psalm 95, 10 to 11. It's clear that um, entering the promised land for Israel after the 40 years of wandering and the hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, entering into the land is described as entering my rest. In the case of this psalm, it's referring to those who didn't get to, to do that. They didn't enter the rest. But the idea is entering the promised land was rest. And when you spot that, then you go to the New Testament, we see, if you can click on, please, just to the Hebrews 4 passage. Thank you. In the New Testament, entering the final kingdom is also described as rest. Now, I don't have time to unpack this. I hope I do one day get to unpack this. But the writer of the Hebrews in the New Testament says, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. Don't blame him for not knowing where this came from. People read that and go, didn't he know his Bible? Um, it's just they didn't have chapters and verses okay, in those days. So somewhere someone has written is a perfectly good way to say it. He couldn't say first scroll, 37th paragraph, ninth line, right? Somewhere someone has said, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. There remains then, you see this logic? A Sabbath rest for the people of God. God rested, there's a Sabbath rest for us. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. It's complicated, but I just want you to see the very simple point. This passage explicitly says that God's rest at creation and the weekly Sabbath day were pointers to final salvation, to the rest we will enter into in God's kingdom. Rest with its connotations of joy and feasting and renewal, is God's favorite picture of your salvation. The toil of life resolved in a great banquet, in a great rest that we enter into. No wonder then that the Sabbath day was partly for us and partly to the Lord. Because the Sabbath day was a weekly symbol of rest, final rest, partly relaxation and partly worship. Now, I know we've done our Sabbath theology before, so I won't uh, go over it in any detail, but it is interesting, isn't it, that the New Testament neither mandates the Sabbath nor abolishes it. It's one of these curious things. What does the New Testament do with the Sabbath? It says two things. It says we can make up our own minds about how to apply the Sabbath day. That's uh, Romans 14, 2 to 5. You can keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy to the Lord, or you can choose not to. But the other thing uh, the New Testament says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is that no one should judge anyone else for what they do with their Sabbath. 
which I think is a, a really beautiful thing. Anyway, my main point is the broader point, and it's really twofold. Here it is. God's work, uh, word rather, endorses work and rest. I hope you believe that. I hope you're able to take the rest that God endorses. And if you're a little bit lazy, that uh, you'll get the work part as well. But secondly, rest is partly for us and partly to the Lord. I, w- I wonder if this is a bit of a new concept to, to some, that rest isn't only for us. It is for us, of course, but it is partly to the Lord. You see exactly this same theme, not only in the Sabbath, but in the annual festivals or holy days of ancient Israel. Let me thirdly and finally just have a brief look at the great holidays of the Bible. Um, What the Sabbath day was to the Jewish week, the great festivals of the year were annually. They were both rest for us and worship to the Lord. Um, that's why in Leviticus 23, if you still have it open, um, the Sabbath day is listed at the head of all the festivals. Do you notice that? Um, and Jews take this very seriously. When I did my studies of, of ancient Judaism, I was struck by how they don't see the Sabbath day simply as like an enforced day off. They see it as the weekly um, holiday that speaks of the annual holidays that are also coming. There's a weekly rhythm and there's an annual rhythm. It's a, it's a lovely concept. But anyway, after the, fe- the festival of Sabbath is mentioned there in Leviticus 23, are listed the three giant annual festivals. Passover, which falls March to April, uh, Pentecost or Shavuot in May, June, and Tabernacles or Sukkot in September, October. And I say giant festivals because they were giant. These three involved pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you imagine being in ancient Israel, and you've got to go to Jerusalem to, to celebrate this, and some of these took a whole week to celebrate, let alone the week that it required if you lived in Galilee, you know, to get there and then back. What this meant was Israelites knew that in their year they had weeks where they couldn't work and were not allowed to work because they were weeks of rest and worship. Don't forget that. And by definition, putting into practice these festivals meant giving up a lot of work. In fact, the Jewish month of Tishri, which falls when Tabernacle falls, is September, October, um, is basically a month of festivals, because tucked into the great festival of Tabernacles, which is regarded as like the most feasty, celebratory of the year, were two other festivals. So it becomes a three-festival month. You've got what's called Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and, and the Tabernacles, all in this one month of Tishri. Basically, Tishri is a holiday. The whole month is taken up with uh, celebrations, and it's no accident from a historical point of view because Tishri is the month where um, all of the olive and grape harvests are done, and you've got several weeks until you have to sow uh, the winter um, grains. So there's this month where the Lord has stuffed it full of holy days, which I think is kind of cool. The Bible 
has a wonderful work ethic and a wonderful rest ethic. Do you? The festivals, of course, were times of worship, just as the Sabbath day was. But the festivals were also feasting, family, rest, just as the weekly Sabbath was. The festivals were to the year what the Sabbath day was to the week. Okay, so what about us? Because obviously we don't celebrate any of these ancient festivals anymore, right? Unless you're of Jewish heritage, plenty of Jewish Christians do still practice these festivals. Good on them. But they are fulfilled in Jesus, you see. And if we had time, I'd unpack how each of the Jewish festivals comes to its climax in Jesus. But the point I want to underline is that um, it's with Jesus' fulfillment of the Jewish festivals in mind that the early church established its own three festivals. They are the great Easter holy days with its fasting and feasting. It's the Christmas holy days with its feasting. And, you know, every Sunday of the year from ancient times has been regarded as a festival day. You know, in our Book of Common Prayer, the sort of the ancient Anglican document, it forbids fasting on a Sunday. So if you're into fasting, you mustn't do it on Sunday. Why? Because it's the Lord's resurrection day. You cannot fast when it's a feast day. It's a beautiful idea that, that, that we've held in our culture for all these, for all these centuries. You know, the modern practice of taking Easter holidays and Christmas holidays and of reduced Sunday trading, such as it is, comes entirely from our Judeo-Christian history in the West, entirely. As I say, it's something our atheist friends should thank God for. Let me close. Any biblical approach to holidays will see holidays as rest from work and worship to the Lord. Christians see holidays as, in part, holy days. You got that? Holidays are, of course, a break from work. For some, they're a break from church too, right? Because you nick off and you don't, you don't come to church. Fine. We reduce the number of services. We pause our Bible studies. Our ministry slows down. Fine, 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 fine. But friends, we don't take a break from the Lord. That's what I want to say today. We don't take a break from his word, from prayer, from reflection and obedience. In fact, holidays are the perfect time to renew our spirits as well. Just as holiday rest can renew the body so we can be more productive, so holiday rest can renew our soul 
and deepen our relationship with God if you approach your holidays in the right way. Rest, after all, is one of God's favorite images of your final salvation. So whenever you're resting, glass of wine down at the beach watching the sun go down, make it holy. Give thanks. Ponder the Lord's gifts and think of your final salvation. Punchline of this whole sermon is very simple. Make your holidays in part holy days. Yeah? Whether you're taking an actual holiday or just going to enjoy a, a slower January, make it a time of spiritual renewal, will you? Build new patterns into your holidays. Peter Watson was telling me during the week, he'll be embarrassed that I'm telling you now, he's telling me during the week that um, when Margot uh, and he go away on their caravanning trips, as they do periodically, uh, they decide their holiday practice is to say the, the morning prayer in the prayer book together, the, the daily, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's a different, together, as a kind of spiritual renewal. Great idea. Um, here's another idea. Why not um, get hold of my top five Christian books that's in the news here, the third last page. I've listed them as Tim Keller's Prodigal God, C.S. Lewis's Mere, Christi- Mere Christianity, John Stott's Radical Disciple, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Get hold of one of those. Get onto Amazon or Book Depository or... If you're a sting, abebooks.com.au for your second hands. Um, get hold, of, get hold of that. It'll arrive by January and knock it off. One of them. If you're super keen, all five. But, but make your holidays in part holy days. Or here's another idea. Why not sign up for my summer Bible reading guide that will begin, um, Boxing Day. Okay? Um, how do you do that? Very simple. I'm going to email you all tomorrow. And you just simply reply, yes. And then uh, from Boxing Day, uh, Monday to Friday, till January 27th, I'm going to send you a Bible passage with a brief reflection. Super easy. Yeah? I, I, you know, I won't be taking a role. Who says Yes. You know, old Tony Stavely, he didn't sign up, you know, because I know he's reading the Bible twice a year anyway, and, you know, it's fine. (laughs) Make your holidays in part holy days. That's what I'm saying. And whether you take me up on either of these ideas, I don't mind, but I am urging us all to look into this summer period with a renewed sense of worship that you will renew your body but also your soul through Bible reading, prayer, reflection, meditation and obedience. Rest is a symbol of your salvation. So make your holidays in part holy days. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you have made us for work and rest. Lord, help us all to process this 
and in our own way work out what it means to rest for our own sake, but also to rest in honor of you. Lord, I pray that as um, the year wraps up and most of us get a little bit of space through January, please, Father, revive us. May our resting through January so renew us that come February as a church, we might thrive in our love for each other, for our care for the poor, for our preaching of the gospel, and above all, our love for you. Revive us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.